You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come Hi there, everybody. This is Danny Anderson. Thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Um, I work at Mount Alalosius College. I teach English there, and I do this on the side. And it's always been a, a very kind of uh, gratifying activity for me. As an accidental academic, as I like to call myself, I often feel sort of out of place wherever I am. And uh one of the things I love about this show is it creates a conversation not only with people who I have as guests, but also listeners. And I have to give a shout out to my listener, Elton, who um, get shot me this uh, a link to the article written by the guests that we're going to talk to today. And it kind of embodies everything I love about this show. So I really am grateful for Elton for uh, taking the time and for also taking the time to email me. I've enjoyed our email exchanges. Um, and so if anybody's listening out there, wants somebody to, uh, to send an email to, consider uh, consider me an option. Um, so I want to thank Elton for sending me an article called Drinking Alone. And it was published a few weeks ago in Commonweal Magazine. Um, and the author is Jonathan Malesic, and who I also want to thank for joining me today to talk about this uh, article that he wrote. Jonathan, how are you doing? I'm doing great, uh, Danny. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. Uh, well, I'm very grateful for you to to be here. I uh, this article I shared immediately on my own personal Facebook page. It uh, it really struck home with a lot of my experience. Partially, you were writing about being uh, a transplanted academic in Pennsylvania, a different region of Pennsylvania that I'm in. But it really reflected a lot of my own kind of anxieties, and you really gave me a lot of. Um, uh, resources, uh, I guess, intellectual resources to kind of cope with uh, some of the things that make this such a weird job <laughs> for both yeah. those of us who are found like, stumble into it like I did. Um, and so I, I just got to, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and then we'll kind of get into your article. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I am, I guess, an ex-academic. Uh, I grew up outside of Buffalo, New York, and uh went to college in Washington, D.C., and graduate school in Charlottesville, Virginia, and had this longtime dream of being a college theology professor. And I got my dream. Uh, I became a professor at a small Catholic college in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, and uh, moved up there with, with great optimism that I was going to lead this academic life and be a part of this small city uh, and, and, you know, serve the community in that way. Um, and the, you know, the thing, it, it didn't work out exactly as I planned, uh, as we'll talk about. But yeah, I, I taught there for 11 years um, with you know, many, many very happy moments uh, and accomplishments and also a lot of sadness and disappointment uh, and eventual burnout. Uh, I, it, it got to the point where I just couldn't face another day at work. 
Um, and so after 11 years, I quit uh, and I followed my wife's career. Uh, my wife is also an academic and she got a job uh, in Dallas, Texas. And so we moved here four years ago. And I wrote this piece, uh, which tells the story about my experience in Wilkes-Barre over those 11 years, mainly focused on the kind of cultural clash that I experienced. Uh, on the one hand, here I was, you know, as, as you certainly know, uh, an academic who was enculturated in what I call in the piece, this archipelago of uh, culture, you know, academic, professional culture. Um, and you, you, you grow, you, you know, you get, you, you get all of these expectations about what the good life is, what, uh, you know, how a person should live. And then you go to a very different culture. Um, the culture of Northeast Pennsylvania is very different from the cosmopolitan culture of that archipelago of big cities and small college towns. And that, that big, that, that cultural gap or that cultural conflict uh, is the main conflict in the essay that I wrote. And I, I focused that conflict on my experience of the drinking culture in Wilkes-Barre. Uh, we think of drinking as something that, you know, brings people together. It's all about conviviality. Uh, and as I discovered, and I think is true, you know, beyond my experience, drinking culture equally uh, can divide people. Uh, it, uh, it, it can sort of reproduce and reinforce uh, cultural divides. And so I, like I say, the conflict in the piece is that, that cultural conflict played out through, uh, through the drinking culture in Wilkes-Barre. It's a beautiful metaphor um, for what you're talking about. And you open by narrating going to a distributor. By the way, if you're not from Pennsylvania and you move to Pennsylvania, buying beer is one of the most alienating experiences you will ever have in your life. I felt like yes. I was on a prank show when I was trying to buy beer for the first time. Everybody was looking at me like I was an alien. Um, and I, you can look up the, the laws, but there are certain stores you could buy six packs at, but then you have to, if you want to buy a case, you have to go to a different store. And if you want to buy wine or spirits, you have to go to a different store. And Walmart probably won't ever have it, right? And so... Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's very strange, but, uh, so you go into a distributorship, uh, and, and talk to somebody while you're trying to buy uh, a PBR. Right. And, right. and that was an interesting moment because I think there's one thing I, I have to say, it's a beautifully written piece, uh, as you would expect in Commonweal, right. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also <laughs> think, um, it, it, it's, it, you're self-effacing, you're sort of honest about your own role in this alienation, right? And and you're kind of upfront about PBR in Virginia being a signifier of kind of hipster culture, right? And that right. doesn't register for the dude at the, at the distributorship, right? And so right. I think that that was one of the, right, right off the bat, a really interesting moment where you use that metaphor to insert a really interesting cultural conflict. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, perhaps uh, if I had known, I would have, uh, 
you know, gotten a, a case of lion's head or something like that. Um, <laughs> or, or at least yingling lager. Right. Um, but yeah, exactly. Like, uh, I, I was just thinking about this last night, how PBR, uh, it was that cultural signifier of it. It was a working class Milwaukee beer that, you know, for decades was just kind of a joke. I mean, nobody drinks PBR, right? But then suddenly became cool um, as people who, who live in the cosmopolitan culture of big cities and college towns sort of adopted certain uh, aspects of working class culture, you know? So I can recall late in my graduate school years in the early 2000s, uh, you know, people drinking PBR and wearing, you know, the trucker hats and, um, you know, getting uh, like stereotypically working class tattoos and, and stuff like that. And, you know, that was kind of, to me, that was this attempt by people in the cosmopolitan culture to try to uh, experience the, the trappings of uh, a localized working class culture without actually coming into contact with actual working class people. <laughs> um, and... <laughs> You know, I, I had developed, I guess, a taste for PBR, or maybe I figured that people, you know, actually drank PBR in Wilkes-Barre, and the guy at the distributorship said, no one does. Um, and, you know, so I, here I was actually thrown into a, you know, that locally focused working class culture, um, and coming in. I can navigate this, it'll be fine. Um, and it, it, you know, I couldn't really navigate it. It was a, a it was a real challenge to, um, I don't know, to, to, to meet the, the people I was teaching and the people who I, you know, shared the city with uh, on their terms, uh, just because I had been so acculturated to, um, you know, a different values and different way of life. And it really is, I think, an uncomfortable truth that I think a lot of enlightened, highly educated liberals, but you're, you know, right. whatever, you're Elizabeth Warren voters, right? Uh, like they don't like to confront. I mean, it's difficult to confront the fact that you have this stated affinity with like working class people, but no real lived experience with those people. And in fact, when confronted with those people, it's a very uncomfortable situation. Right. And, and yeah. I think that goes to, it's underneath a whole lot of, of our political um, divide in this culture, in this, our culture today. Um, actually, Elton um, pointed me towards uh, an article about Christopher Lash's book, uh, revolt of the elites. And, uh, he said that your article made him think of that. And so I actually just went to the library and checked that out. I've never read that, but I think it's something that there is, uh, there's been a long brewing kind of disconnect between our kind of professional classes, intellectual classes and the working classes for whom there used to be at least a closer, uh, at least ideological connection, if not like 
geographic or, or lived. And, and I think PBR is a wonderful symbol <laughs> for it condenses all of that into a really uh, very average beer, I suppose. Um, and so, um, <laughs> um, and I am somebody who, you know, I don't drink a lot. I, I, uh, I probably average 10 six packs a year or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, so I, I don't know that I've ever kind of had a go-to um, great lakes. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. So I, mm-hmm. I go for the locals, I guess. But yeah. um, um, so anyway, let me, uh, I want to ask uh, originally when you're giving your biography, you mentioned you had this kind of long uh, desire to be a, an academic, right? So what was it about that life that spoke to you in, as a person growing up in Buffalo. And, and I guess maybe you could talk a little bit. One of the things Elton wanted to know was about your, were you part of working class Buffalo or middle class Buffalo or, um, and maybe you can connect those two dots here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I was part of middle class Buffalo. Um, my parents uh, grew up in the city itself in, you know, sort of white ethnic enclaves. Um, you know, my uh, grandmother, who is 107 years old. Oh, wow. <laughs> Amazing. Congrats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She has now lived through uh, two plant pandemics. Um, and yeah, she lived almost her entire life on the, the Polish east side of Buffalo. And that's where my mother grew up. And uh, my father grew up in, you know, kind of, well, he grew up partly in Pittsburgh, but he grew up in sort of like a German enclave um, in, uh, in Buffalo. And, you know, over the the course of um, their marriage, you know, they, they, they followed, uh, you know, I think a fairly typical migration pattern uh, further and further out, uh, into suburbia. Mm. And, you know, my, um, uh, my, my, my grandmother and my grandfather both worked for the American standard radiator company in Buffalo. So my, my grandparents were clearly working class. Uh, and my father was the first to sort of make the transition into the professional class. Um, and yeah, he and my mother, um, you know, they had four children, they raised them again, successively uh, further and further out onto kind of the leading edge of suburbia. And I'm the youngest. And so, you know, I went to suburban public schools uh, and then uh, an urban Catholic school uh, for high school. And, you know, I was always interested in, in like school was, you know, something I really liked and excelled at. And, you know, my parents supported me advancing, you know, economically uh, through education. And I had always wanted, uh, I was very good at science. And I, I believed that I was going to go to engineering school and be an engineer. Hmm. And this was sort of, I think, what my parents wanted for me you know that's a an identifiable profession for people who had during their lifetime made a transition from uh you know from these you know kind of white ethnic enclave working class enclaves into the professional class 
Uh, and then I got to college and totally changed my mind. <laughs> and uh, it was it was in college that I started to get interested in religious studies and theology, and also decided that I, I think I wanted to be a college professor. And, and it was simply that I saw my college professors and learned about their lives just enough to want their lives. Mm. Uh, I didn't learn enough to see the, the downsides of uh, an academic career. Um, but yeah, I, I, I thought that, that they lived the good life. Uh, and so I wanted to imitate that. And so that's, that's when that dream really materialized. That's interesting. And uh, may I ask where you went to undergrad? Yeah. I went to the Catholic university of America oh, okay. in Washington, DC. Okay. Um, yeah. And I think my chair actually in my department did as well. Uh, and so, um, but I, yeah. And that, but that makes sense though, because you're, you are seeing people who are living a life in one of those kind of uh, those places with the resources, the whole foods and, and that sort of thing that you're talking about. Right. And so um, we're sort of of a generation where the jobs we are getting are kind of out in the, into the hinterlands uh, like, like sort of where we are. And so, yeah, there is a, uh, uh, a way, and I don't want to say it's a, a professional bait and switch, but you, you didn't have the opportunity to imagine a life, an academic life in one of these remote places. Um, Right. And, you know, you go to graduate school and you're not encouraged to imagine no. an academic life in a remote area. Uh, you know, as far as you're concerned, everybody teaches at Yale. You know? <laughs> and um, but then, you know, you realize at some point, well, that's not where the jobs are. Right. Um, you know, one of the well, yeah. And, and I mean, it, one of, though I think that that's you know the fact that the typical academic does not teach at Yale or any place remotely like it is one of the the ways that academic can I don't know uh, can can be a place where different cultures meet you know universities and small colleges can be meeting points of these. Uh, two different cultures in America. And it could, and I think it's not only sort of indoctrination of, um, you know, working class locally focused people uh, into a cosmopolitan culture. If it's done right, then there's a real cultural exchange and a new way of living can come out of that. For me, that that happened a little too rarely. Um, in, in the response to this essay, I got many responses from former students of mine who said, "Yeah, you know the, what you what you described really echoes what I experienced in growing up in Northeast Pennsylvania." And with one exception, all of those students had grown up there, gone to college, and left. Mm. Uh, they all had gone to, you know, New York, New Jersey, D.C., Baltimore, or, or wherever else to dive into the, the cosmopolitan professional culture and, you know, try to make their fortune there. Um, they're mostly, yeah, it's, it's that kind of brain drain uh, 
which is which is a an issue right i mean not only for the kind of cultural and educational lives of these campuses but also their very existence because of that brain drain there's like a population suck in uh, in Pen- across Pennsylvania in the Midwest and all the way through the Northeast. Um, and so colleges are finding themselves under financial pressures because fewer people live here now, right? And so uh, we already know the babies were born 18 years ago, and it's kind of too late to do anything about getting more people now. And so, uh, yeah, there's a uh, – uh, that has like a long-term kind of cultural effect on um, – entire regions. And when somebody who has this kind of more uh, cosmopolitan, more kind of well-educated, worldly, I suppose, experience is brought into a place like this, it can be kind of like shocking, right? And so I guess that's one thing I want to talk a little bit about is the the forms of the the ways in which you feel alienated. At one point, you'd say uh, in your essay here, talking about the, the education is kind of a, a form of liberation, right? You, it, it empowers you on some level. And then you look at the other side of that as well. But it also means being equally ill at ease ever, anywhere, including among citizens of your home, own, own country, right? And so like that is certainly my experience, right? I Once I went to grad school, a place that I was... I, like I said, I kind of stumbled into academia. I did not have this long-term dream of being an academic. It was just something that was kind of brought up to me the very last semester of college, and 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 it was just very a uh, an a total accident, and um, uh, and so it did sort of give me just enough of a new experience that I could no longer very easily relate to my old life anymore. Uh, you know what I'm saying? And so it put me in this weird netherworld, uh, existentially, I guess. And uh, and I, I work very hard, actually, to be hospitable. It's kind of my driving uh, force. That's what yeah, my driving ethos, right? And that's what happens to be one of our co- four core values here at uh, Mount Aloysius College, where I teach, is mercy, justice, hospitality, and service. Um, but the, the uh, so it works very well for me in that way. <laughs> but uh, but it is something that I have to work very hard at, and so because I often do feel like an outsider wherever I am. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, particularly as it pertains to Wilkesbury? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, what I what I meant by being equally ill at ease everywhere is that in the cosmopolitan professional or you call it meritocratic uh, culture, you are supposed to be able to pick up your entire life and move in response to a new assignment, you know, instantly. Uh, and you're supposed to be able to drop into a place and get a feel for the culture. And, uh, yeah, I don't know, maybe it's a, in a way it's an ideal of connoisseurship, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and gosh, I was just, it just occurred to me, um, it's in these absurd advertisements that you see in, um, airline magazines, where there's always the full page ad of the best steakhouses in America or something like that. <laughs> They're all these cookie cutter places that are totally identical and totally characterless and ex- but extremely expensive because of course your, your meal is going to be expensed anyway. Um, that's on the one hand, like that's the culture of the the meritocratic elite 
in caricature at yeah. least. Sure, yeah. Uh, it's the MBA and, student you talk about in the article, the tribe with that resists tribalism, sort of, right? Right. Ready to pick up at any given moment for the next opportunity. Right. And so, it, but in order to be ready to pick up uh, for the next opportunity, you can't develop close ties. You can't feel a sense of belonging. You can't feel rooted anywhere. Uh, and in a place like Wilkesbury that has been basically abandoned by, uh, by capital, by, uh, you know, the, the meritocratic world, uh, you know, Wilkesbury was an anthracite coal mining town and they stopped mining, uh, in the fifties and sixties. And yeah, again, the, the city was just sort of abandoned. It's like, well, you know, we've gotten all that we can out of this place. And so we'll forget about it. But generations of people still live there. Um, and, you know, to some degree cut off from that world of the, uh, the, the greatest steakhouses, allegedly, uh, <laughs> in America. And, and people in, um, people in places like Wilkes-Barre often have a very strong sense of belonging. Um, you know, they have generations of family members who have lived there um, in more prosperous economic times. There wasn't a really strong need to stray very far from home. You could, you know, build a, a pretty flourishing life uh, out of what was already there. Um, and so that, you know, very local, um, culture where you, you want to be where, where I guess like the people who help you to determine your own self worth are, are right there. Whereas in academia, you determine your self worth by measuring it against people who live far away, uh, you know, you, you are measuring your worth against in the faculty Yale um, rather than, you know, your, your neighbors or something like that. That um, archipelago uh, metaphor that you use is, a, is yeah. a great way to describe it. There's these little places where it emerges in various places all across the country. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you put it really nicely, the, the kind of, um, settled nature of a place like Wilkesbury. I live uh, kind of in the middle between Johnstown and Altoona and uh, in a little town called Ebensburg. And, um, and this very much reminds me of Ebensburg. Um, in this city where many people leave, but few move in, I would always be a newcomer, not from there. Of course, I didn't want to be from there. So it was where I lived. I didn't want to be a permanent alien either. I drank to fit in and I drank because I didn't. And, and, and I think that that, that is a way in which you have a group of people who've, I mean, everybody's known everybody since their great grandmothers went to kindergarten together. Right. And so mm -hmm. it's not a particular, they're not practiced in, in welcoming and knowing how to interact with people who they haven't known their whole lives. Right. And so when you add that to the fact that you 
are have a completely different worldview in some cases because of your education, right? Um, it can feel like you are an insane person. <laughs> you're, you're treated mm-hmm. as though you can be an insane person, right? And so I think that's partially part of what made the essay really resonate with me is that little observation, right? But all all the way through this, there is a way in which I'm having to confront my own complicity in this disconnect as well, right? Um, I, I I have to kind of figure out how I can uh, make a life here with these folks. And, and so, um, and that's one thing that's so beautiful about the essay, but um, yeah. And so that to me was um, a, a really great uh, kind of way to frame that disconnect between these two cultures. Um, and you use this anthropologist who I, you know, embarrassingly had never heard of before, uh, Mary Douglas. And uh, it's, to me, it's uh, this idea of the grid versus the group um, is, uh, do you want to describe that? Because that really helps me understand <laughs> Like not okay. only this dynamic, but many dynamics. And I'm so happy to have been to finally have encountered this idea that apparently is very basic, and I have somehow missed my whole life. But, um, but that's why I'm an well, accidental I, academic, by the way. <laughs> well, I think that <laughs> I think I mean the reason that I know. I mean, I read a, I read about I read Mary Douglas in in graduate school in religious studies, where you know. I think she's probably still read. I, I doubt that she's read in uh, in English department. So, mm. you know, I absolve you from. Well, the uh, only anthropologist I read was Victor Turner because of liminality oh, okay. and stuff, you know. But um, but uh-huh. go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, Mary Douglas. Uh, she posited this way of understanding culture, and you know, you can chart. Uh, she called them cosmologies. You can think of it as just sort of ways of understanding the world. Um, and there are, there are two axes. One axis she called group. And that is the level to which, you know, the, the individual identifies with the group where there's a, a strong sense of group cohesion. And often there's, um, a, well, the, the boundaries between who belongs and who doesn't are very clear and very important. Uh, and so on the one extreme of, you know, group would be a, a, a fraternity or, um, you know, certain religious organizations would be, you know, high group identity and the far end would be more individualistic cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the, the other axis she calls grid and that is, uh, she calls it like the, the, the system of social classification. So it's, it's basically like the rules and ranks of a culture. Um, and so a high grid culture would be one where there are a lot of rules and the rules really weigh on and constrain the individual. And a low grid one would be one where there aren't a whole lot of rules that constrain you. So you have these these two axes, and together they form four quadrants. You know, four basic models of uh, of cultures, and so you've got um, sort of a high grid, high group culture uh, that would be like the Catholic Church or an army. It really matters if you are in the army or you're not in the army, <laughs> and there's a very rigid structure of ranks. Uh, that determine a lot of your experience. Um, low grid, low group would be individualists. 
uh, entrepreneurs, um, you know, again, like there's sort of, you don't feel a strong sense of belonging to others, but you also don't feel a strong sense of rules and ranks weighing on you. Mm. Those two models of society, um, Douglas sees as fairly stable. Um, you know, a hierarchy is sort of self-perpetuating. And the other two are less stable on her uh, taxonomy. So you've got high grid, but low group would be, uh, she calls it um, isolated or isolate. So it's, uh, the, the best example would be that, that kind of pops into mind is maybe like, you know, the, the person who is alienated, who feels the sense of social order, the ranks and classifications and status system weighing on them, but they don't have a sense of belonging. Like me in Evansburg. Okay. Um, which I, <laughs> Possibly. I have come, I have well, overcome much of that, by the way. But yeah, initially. Yeah, well, no, but yeah. I, I think that that's true. Being an academic, um, you know, academia, the, the status is on you. Um, and if you can't find a sense of belonging within that, then you, you feel very alienated. Yeah. Um, and then the, the final one would I group low grid, so strong sense of belonging, but not a strong sense of, um, you know, rules and classifications. And that I think is the, explains the culture of uh, places like Wilkes-Barre and, and many other uh, sort of post-industrial cities in the United States. Um, and I think that the, 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 the grid sort of broke down in a lot of those places over the last several decades. Mm. Um, you know, the you know, industry left. And so, you know, there's no longer the, the, the sense of, um, uh, you know, finding status in a good job or something like that. Um, the church has suffered attrition and also scandal. And so it's, you know, the, the, it's the, the, the system of social meaning that it provided is sort of broken down. And so you see, you know, across post-industrial America, this low sense of trust in institution. And I think that the institution earned that lack of trust. Um, you, you know, the, the industries have left, the church has, you know, committed in some cases very bad uh, crimes and has covered them up. Um, you know, there's a lot of political corruption. And so people lose their, they lose faith mm -hmm. in the, the system of meaning. But to, to compensate maybe the, the sense of group cohesion becomes stronger. Um, there's that, that sense of, well, we're from here and these people aren't. Mm. And, that there's something positive about that. It, it creates a sense of community, but there's also something negative. Um, outsiders don't include just people like me or you who move in and, you know, to, to get jobs and be educators, but outsiders also include, well, anyone who tries to, um, 
to move in from the outside. And in Northeast Pennsylvania, uh, a lot of people have, a lot of uh, people of color have moved from, um, you know, from larger cities or from abroad and have received a very poor welcome uh, from longtime white residents. And so this, that hostility is aimed not just at like the, the cosmopolitan or capitalist class, but also from anyone who is not a longtime white resident. There's so much important there. I, I just want to hover on that for a little bit if we can. Um, for, for one thing, I think on a kind of political level, I think this explains a lot of, or it's connected to at least, a lot of kind of liberal America's disgust with like Pennsylvania Trump voters, right? Um, mm. Is that they see the hostility towards people of color, right? Um, they don't acknowledge the other kind of the other kinds of hostility that part of this is caused by the way that they have been exploited over decades by um, by capitalist classes, right? And and so I think that those two things work together, and it's not to excuse the way that they treat people of color, and that's what I want to get into next, um, because that's a, a a serious issue on college campuses, right? Because we are, I mean as a college like i'm going to speak for the college i work with work for the um the uh our mission drives everything we do the, this idea of like service right the sisters of mercy founded this college to serve to provide education to people who weren't uh who to whom it wasn't available uh at, at the time that they founded the college right and so that and the sisters of mercy do amazing work um this is just a small part of the archipelago of all their amazing work that they do across the world um and so one of those uh, groups that we're trying to serve is people of color and so we bring students of color to a, a place like the middle of Johnstown and and and, and uh, Altoona and they are not treated very well because of this outsider um, attitude, um, mainly outside of campus, but not just outside of campus, also on campus. Um, I happen, I mean, I'm on a committee that we've formed who recently, um, actually before the George Floyd story stuff even started, we formed a committee to kind of look at the ways we can better serve our students of color. And, um, I happen to be on that committee, but, um, and so this is something that I know that we take very seriously, but it is also a point at which this conflict that arises out of these two worlds that are that have a college campus is a conflict between two worlds when it's located <laughs> where it's mm -hmm. when where we are located right and and i think what you're talking about is, is very important like i i can whine and moan all day about not feeling like i'm from here even though i'm just a white guy from cleveland right i i imagine if i were a person of color or a different uh, minority religion or something right um it, it's a hundred times worse and so um like i I try to remember other people experiences in much more profound ways than I do. Um, but I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about the, the kind of race um, issues of places in the middle of Pennsylvania and frankly in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia too. It's not like they're immune from them. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, a little bit. I, I, um, yeah, I mean the, the world that I'm describing in the essay is almost completely white world uh and you know that's so there's there's a big part of you know wilkesbury culture that was left out mm -hmm. um because you know i i didn't experience it though you know uh, a, a quick recommendation of um 
another essay um, that listeners might enjoy on, on a kind of similar topic. Um, it's beautiful and, and heartbreaking. It's um, came out in, I want to say Buzzfeed um, in early 2017 uh, by Alia Hannah Habib. Um, she's a literary agent uh, in New York and grew up in Wilkes-Barre as um, in as, as you know, one of very few uh, Arab American uh, students in her high school. And so she talks about the experience of racism that uh, her family experienced and, and having um, an Arab American father. And uh, I believe her mother was maybe Lithuanian American um, and, you know, everything that she, she faced there, mm. um, really lovely piece. Um, in any case, the, yeah, so the, as I've said, the, the number of, um, black and Hispanic residents in, you know, Northeast Pennsylvania has grown over the past, you know, decade or two. And, um, they face again, quite a bit of hostility and uh, there's a really, I'm going to give yet another re reading recommendation Please. <laughs> um, That's what we're all about. That, that can, uh, can uh, address some of these issues that I can. Uh, sociologist Jennifer Silva uh, published a book came out last year called We're Still Here. And it's focused on uh, the anthracite coal mining region of Pennsylvania, um, smaller towns than Wilkes-Barre. Uh, and it's, it's about, pol it's the, the subtitle is something like politics and pain mm. in America's coal region or something like that. And, you know, you, the, the first chapter is, you know, all these interviews with, you know, frankly, unrepentant white racists, and it's just infuriating to read what they have to say. Um, by the end of the book though, she's interviewing these black and Hispanic residents. And she sees the, the possibility for transformation in some of these cities that um, they, can, they, can, they can perhaps prosper in, uh, in a way that perhaps hadn't anticipated could become open to, you know, people moving there, um, you know, people of color moving there. And the, you know, she, she interviews uh, black and Hispanic residents of these towns who, who seem to have quite a bit of hope. Mm. Um, they say, well, you know, I can make a better life for myself here than I could in, you know, Philadelphia or Norristown or, or wherever. Um, and that she sees as somewhat encouraging. Um, but it, right, it opens up, you know, the possibility for, you know, much greater uh, culture clash. And, and a really interesting role for colleges, right? Um, and, yeah. um, but one that is kind of defined not by traditional academic 
standards of, uh, of value, right? I mean, these are more kind of, and I suppose I, religious colleges are pretty particularly well suited to address these sorts of things um, if they take the religious mission seriously, right? And so I think that um, there's a way in which a college can be that kind of city on a hill, if you want to use an outdated metaphor, right? Mm-hmm. That a beacon of some sort for this kind of um, hope for change. Um, and on that note, I mean, I have to say, um, I don't want to talk too much. I don't want to trash my town, right? But um, uh, this is a point at which I actually feel a great deal of of pride um, for about what's happening where I live. Um, not at the beginning of the story, but by the end. And uh, so for Memorial Day parade, that was canceled because of the coronavirus. Um, so there was sort of an improvised Memorial Day parade where people just sort of showed up and informally drove through town. And there was a dude who came in with a Confederate flag on the back of his tractor and ran it through the Memorial Day parade. And um, a lot of folks were really appalled by this. And um, in, in particularly, but not just um, our citizens of color, right? And so this became um, an issue for the city council. And I was really, really proud. At first, there was kind of the sense that they were, you know, just kind of like, well, let's just hope it goes away and we won't talk about it. But they really did address it head on. And our council chairman um, wrote out this really amazing speech that he gave to um, concerned citizens about how he was appalled. And they actually made tangible steps to make sure that the Confederate flag doesn't come in the parades anymore um, through some legal uh, means by transferring who runs the parade from the town to some private entity. Um, And so the town is no longer restricting free speech in that way. Um, But I really, I went up to the council president. I said, I, this, I really do feel a lot of um, gratitude for what you did. And I think that this is a place, uh, this is a moment when, you know, we kind of recognize um, the need for more hospitality in this region. And so, um, yeah, I do, I do think, I, I don't know. I was very moved by that personally. And so, and it's mm-hmm. tangentially related to what you're talking about here. Um, but I do want to talk a little bit about um, the role of the church. Uh, like one of Elton's questions actually um, for you was about, I mean, did the church not provide that kind of community center for you um, while you were in Wilkes-Barre? Um, did, and I just want to hear your thoughts. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it did to some degree, um, I I loved the church that uh, I, I belonged to there. Um, it was a traditionally ethnically German parish uh, that you know every uh, right before Lent always had a, a German a Deutsche Nacht, <laughs> <laughs> where you know there would be this festival in the church basement with. You know, German music and sausages and beer and and all of that, um, and a very uh, vibrant uh, church bazaar every summer with um, also German food. But the parish became more ethnically diverse over the time I was there, and so you know, year by year, there was more uh, Mexican food, Caribbean food. Vietnamese food at the bazaar. Uh, and you could, you know, sort of see, you know, these, you know, to me, very exciting changes in the parish, um, you know, playing out like in, at 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 this, this moment when the, not just the parish, but the whole community kind of focused on the parish because it was, it was considered a really good bazaar. 
Um, and, and there was, you know, plenty of, uh, yingling lager poured, um, to, to help you, you know, wash down your potato pancakes. Um, and, you know, I, I worked with RCIA in the parish and, you know, had friends in the parish. Uh, and so the parish did, it, it did play a role in, you know, the social life of the city. I think in, you know, in, in a way that a parish should, you know, it's, it's a center of faith, but it's also a center of culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, to me, that's sort of Catholicism at its best. Mm. Um, and but at the same time, it I don't know, I guess it wasn't quite enough. Maybe I didn't dive in enough uh, to the life of the parish to to get that sense of belonging. Um, I, I don't know. Well, I got, I'll go personal again. Um, sure. I don't do this so much on the show normally. <laughs> I apologize if it's rude, um, but I. I have found, and you make you mention in the um, in the piece, the institutional church is a high grid entity, but the cultural Catholicism in Northeast Pennsylvania is lo- as low grid as the working class drinking culture, right? And I, that I think resonates with my experience. I, I've said since I've moved here, I've lived here just about exactly five years now, um, that this is the least religious place I've ever lived. Um, and I've lived a few places I've lived, you know, of course in Ohio and, uh, I lived in Georgia for a few years. I lived in New York city and I felt like there were places in, um, all of those areas where religion was a cultural nicety, of course, but there was also more vibrant communities where it was taken actually seriously, um, than anything I've experienced here. And, And I, I just, it, the in the whole grid the the grid versus um the group it makes me think about this in a new way i just feel like there is a group identity in towns like where we live that there's no transcendent institution to break out of that group identity, right? The Girl Scouts don't do it. Um, your local sports teams, uh, that doesn't do it. It's all woven in the same hierarchy that the town is built on socially finds its way into all these other institutions. And those institutions are just other places to house that same hierarchy. Does that, does that make any sense mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Oh yeah. perfectly. Um, and I, I feel like there's, um, a, a need for a, a kind of like transcendent, sort of institution like a church that is actually um, noticeably apart from um, the dominant culture that it exists in. And and I I wonder if a higher education institution like the one I work at um, can play that role on some sense. Like we are doing something different than what our neighbors are doing right now. And we're going to purposefully do that um, to stand apart from that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And, and I think that, yeah, there's kind of a, maybe a dual mission that a, uh, a college has uh, in, in a place like this. Mm. It, it is on the one hand, like you say, it's, it's, it transcends the region. It taps the, the students and faculty and, and hopefully the, the whole town into a, a world beyond that it can benefit from you know at the same time though you you don't want 
the higher ed institution or the church for that matter, um, you know, to just kind of pull people out of the world that they came from. Mm. Um, you know, I, I really admire my colleagues, uh, my former colleagues who are working very, very hard to, uh, to improve the lives of people from the Wyoming Valley of Northeast Pennsylvania. Um, you know, they're educating people who will be, uh, you know, business owners and nurses and physician assistants and school board members and parents and other kinds of community leaders in this region, in a region that really needs that. Mm. Um, it's a very challenging vocation to follow, to, you know, to do that work. And, and I, I know so many people who are doing it and they're doing it well and they're doing it without nearly enough recognition. I ultimately couldn't do it. Um, I could do it, you know, I couldn't quite do it for, even for 11 years. I probably could do it for about eight or nine and I could barely do it the last two. Um, and, you know, that ideally they're at the, they're simultaneously getting students to tap into a larger culture that goes beyond the local and getting them to appreciate the local culture that they can then serve. I, that's a great way to put it. I, and I think that's my problem with the, the imagery of the city on the hill, right? I think mm -hmm. a better role for a place like I, where I work is the bridge between that city and the town, uh -huh. right? And, uh, and so I feel like um, living in that bridge is a is a better uh, is a better solution because yeah, these um, I mean the folks that we serve are not wanting to leave necessarily. They want to make the life here better, right? And how best mm -hmm. can we we serve that practice? Um, I do have to say I I am very blessed uh, in my own job. I really, really do love um, the place I work. And, and um, uh, I figured out how to live in the community, I think, uh, largely. I mean, coronavirus has made a difficulty. Uh, I've honestly, I've had, uh, I'm sure lots of people have experienced intense loneliness over this time. Um, but I, I've kind of found a way to work through that. And um, the the mission of my work has actually kind of fed a lot of this. And frankly, the podcast helps me with that too. Um, it helps, gives, puts me in touch with people in those other parts of the archipelago, right? That you're <laughs> like you, right. Uh, and, and that, and my, my listeners. And so um, that that's actually been another way to kind of help me uh, kind of manage, I suppose the, the situation that you've been talking about here. Um, I, I do want to kind of, I want to um, point towards the end here. Um, this is, like an probably related to this essay is related to your larger area of interest, but you're interested in kind of a theology, if you will, of work. Right. Um, and, and you talk about vocation and, and working for education, working for religious institutions. I mean, they, people are famously taken advantage of because of just people working out of love for something. Right. And so there is a way in which work um, is, a great concept, but it can also be, um, a, a poisonous <laughs> sort of pernicious thing. Right. Um, and, and do you want to talk a little bit about 
the, that larger area of interest uh, the, and how this might relate to it? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I um, toward the end of my academic career, I, I did start to get interested in work as a theological and, and ethical problem and how work fits into a life well-lived. And my argument at the time, which in retrospect, I was making the argument to try to convince myself. Uh, the argument that I was trying to make at the time was that we should limit the role that work plays in our conception of the good life. We should not tie our identity to our work. We should not tie our sense of self-worth and, and all of that. Um, and then I kind of wasn't just arguing toward myself. I, I kind of became what I was studying. I became a, a burned out and miserable worker. Mm. And so in the time that I left full-time academia, I've been focusing uh, a lot of my attention on occupational burnouts. And I'm um, you know, currently working on a book on that, that, you know, if all goes well, should be out sometime next year. Oh, great. And yeah, I mean, the, uh, the argument of the book is that burnout is a fairly widespread experience in American um, and, and other cultures over the past 40 or 50 years or so, because there's been this growing gap between our ideals for work and the reality of our jobs. And so we experience that on an individual level. You know, I had these ideals for my job, these ideals for work and this vocation as a, a scholar and a teacher. But then I had the reality of my job. I had, you know, boring committee work. I had, you know, what you say, the, the kind of uh, all the ways that any, any workplace can, um, can exploit and, and overlook uh, workers. And that gap, you know, grew greater and greater and, and harder and harder to, it became harder and harder for me to stretch myself across that gap. And the result, that experience is burnout. Mm. On a societal level, I think we're experiencing the same thing. Our ideals for work keep growing, partly as the population becomes more and more educated and more oriented toward uh, professional and service type jobs, um, and less and less, uh, you know, oriented toward, uh, you know, the skilled trades or, um, you know, industrial or agricultural work. Um, and so like our ideals are growing higher and higher as the reality of our jobs are eroding. Um, and so we, we're, we're in a kind of burnout culture um, where that gap just keeps growing. And, I mean, we need to do two things. Like we need to improve working conditions. But we also need to lower our ideals. We have to stop thinking that work is going to fulfill us. Yeah, I, I, you hear a lot about the overproduction of elites right now, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's it's part of what you're talking about. It's, it's creating a class of people who are, uh, whose I, conception of work doesn't match the reality um, of the opportunities uh, for that work on the ground, right? And you're talking about the fine things you find, like why am I filling out Excel spreadsheets for teaching an English class, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> what does this have to do with anything that's actually important? And so, um, yeah, I, I really look forward to that book and I want to just extend an invitation right now when it comes out, you're more than welcome to uh, come back on the show and pitch it. And, uh, and I will, I will get a copy of it myself. In fact, this is a, a topic that's very near and dear to my heart. A few years ago, we did a, a show, we did a read through of, uh, Matthew Crawford's, uh, shop classes, soul craft. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and so this is a, a topic in which like as someone who is kind of driven by like serving others and, and like my, I try to see my work as, as part of that, but I have in the past experienced the kind of like burnout from what I'm doing and, and kind of lost the spirit um, of the law by trying to keep the letter of the mm-hmm. law as it will. Right. Yeah. And so, um, and so, yeah, I very much look forward to that. Um, in the meantime, Jonathan, um, how can people find you and your work if they want to follow up with you? Yeah, sure. The, on most uh, social media platforms, um, my uh, username is John Malesic, J-O-N-M-A-L-E-S-I-C. So, you know, Twitter is a good place to follow me. Um, my website is johnmalesic.com. And um, uh, my newsletter is uh, Substack. Dot com and the newsletter is you know often the best place to find me because um, I think I'm better at writing mm. you know like 800 words rather than you know 280 characters um, <laughs> but yeah those are all all places where people can find find more of my work um, well I really appreciate it and and I encourage everybody listening to to seek uh, seek your work out John um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you I, I'm very grateful for you taking the time to uh, to be with us today and uh, I want to kind of if just advertise the essay again it's in Commonweal magazine um, and it's called drinking alone um, it was published sometime in July, I believe. I, I, it's been a few weeks since it came out, um, and uh, and so it's a, it's really worth your um, attention. It's beautifully written, and and it gets at a lot of real core issues that we are interested in a lot on this podcast. So I'm very grateful for you uh, to be here with me today. Um, and for those of you still listening, um, I thank you again. My name is Danny Anderson, and I'm more than welcome. Uh, I more than welcome your input and your feedback for the show. Please uh, reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Danny P Anderson, and uh, we have a facebook page and you can find a, a, a website sectarianreviewpodcast.com and uh, i'm more than happy to engage with uh, listeners I, I love to speak with people and so uh, please take me up on that in the meantime for john Melissa, my name is danny anderson thanks again for listening 